Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Did you hear about the fire in the circus? Oh no, there's a fire in the circus? It was intense. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the best arts, culture, and food of the week, delivered in tidy one-hour audio form. That's right. You just got a joke from Matt Berninger, frontman for indie bands The National and his new project El Vi. Mm. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from him later. Plus, we speak with double Golden Globe nominee Alicia Vikander about her turn in the new film, The Danish Girl. Also coming up, comedian Josh Thomas, star of the Pivot Channel series Please Like Me, recalls being his mother's keeper. Cartoonist Randall Monroe, the man behind the webcomic XKCD, talks to us using very simple language. And we learn if it's okay to bring a half-empty bottle of wine to a dinner party. Or half-full bottle. Yeah. But first, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The White House pushed back against criticism of its ISIS strategy. Chipotle Mexican Grill has been linked to more than 100 cases of food poisoning. More than 70,000 Cubans have fled to the United States this year. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is the Hollywood columnist and critic for Vanity Fair. He also hosts their new award season podcast, wonderfully called Little Gold Men. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about the first ever brain-powered car. And this is a true story. It's not just an idea I had. <laughs> Although, maybe so you've I... You've been talking I, about yeah. this since you were in third grade. I, I have. Where does this come from? Well, some scientists at a university in China have been spending the past couple of years putting this together. And basically, they strap 16 sensors to your head. And they ha- they've been able to make the car go forward, backward, left, right, and stop. And how does that happen? You just think... Yeah, forward? so they've designed a computer program that's, that filters out the specific brain waves. Waves that do that? Yeah. Oh, so it's not like you think, I want to go to the ice cream store and it takes you there. Well, yeah, hopefully not. I mean, so they're in this article on Reuters, they, they mentioned that there had been some obvious concerns that if you got distracted while driving your brain car... <laughs> <laughs> Look, a bird! <laughs> you would lose control. That happening, but they yeah. said, no, 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 because it only responds... You only have to concentrate when you're trying to go forward, back stop left or right oh that's it so that's it yeah otherwise yeah. it's fine yeah. you know just... my brain can barely operate a television remote control like i can't <laughs> yeah. imagine it's going to be able to drive a car are we going to be driving these anytime soon uh i don't know if anytime soon but they're, they're trying to partner with uh automotive companies and and maybe trying to make some hybrid between a brain-powered car and these sort of computer control cars that we've seen you know google oh. developing which i don't know if you've seen the video of a simulation of an intersection with these computer cars it's the most terrifying thing i've ever seen because it's <laughs> all these near misses but are very calculated to not be full, you know, like hits. And uh, that's why I live in New York and don't have to drive. That's right. right. My brain takes the subway. Richard Lawson, (laughs) thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you a tale from history, then have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. It's our patent-pending history lesson with booze. Yes, and this week we inaugurate a beautiful friendship with the digital cabinet of curiosities called atlasobscura.com. They're always posting fascinating forgotten stories of the past, and this one first appeared there. It's about a tech trailblazer you might not have heard of who was born this week 200 years ago in 1815. We adapted it for radio. Here's Michelle Philippi to tell the tale. Ada Lovelace was one of the most groundbreaking mathematicians ever. But her life didn't exactly go by the numbers. To begin with, her dad was the great British poet Lord Byron, who on the plus side was a literary genius 
and on the minus side was famous for being in debt and sleeping around. At one point, rumor had it, with his own half-sister. Ada's mother, Anne, meanwhile, was an intellectual and kind of a prude. So she not surprisingly divorced Byron almost as soon as Ada was born. But Anne was determined her daughter would be the opposite of mad poetic Byron, and she figured the best way to ensure that was to get the kid rigorous training in logic and math. Good move. Turns out Ada was a natural math and engineering geek. By age 12, she'd written a book about the mechanics of flight. And by 18, she'd formed a, quote, intense intellectual partnership with a math genius twice her age, Charles Babbage, who'd drawn up one of the first computer designs in history. Babbage nicknamed Ada the Enchantress of Numbers, a title she earned after writing up notes on an invention of his called the Analytical Engine. Those notes included an algorithm designed to make the gizmo spit out special numbers. Many now consider it the first computer program. Ada died of cancer at age 36, and for a while was remembered mainly as Lord Byron's kid. But in the last few decades, folks finally recognized her work. Each October, the tech world celebrates Ada Lovelace Day. And when coders designed the special computer language used by the Department of Defense, they called it Ada. So that was the history lesson. Now to get a drink to go along with it, we are on the line with Ali Reynolds. He is bar manager at Hawksmoor Spitalfields in London, which was the home of Ada Lovelace. Ali, were you familiar with um, Ada Lovelace before we reached out to you? Yeah, actually, Lord Byron's a big um, inspiration for me. I've got I've got quotes from him tattooed on my arms. Oh my goodness! So, uh, is it weird to have the words of one of the most famous Lotharios of all time on your arms? Um, I, I, I'll leave that to everyone else's judgment. But um, it, it that's like that's like having Jimmy Page's picture on your guitar. I mean, that's like kind of. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe. So let's just proceed here. Tell me, tell me about this uh, cocktail that you made for us. So Ada Lovelace's work with the analytical engine, I think, inspired a lot of uh, work from Alan Turing later, later on for the first modern computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was binary code. So looking at that... And for those who aren't really familiar with how computers work, binary code is the system of representing letters and numbers using zeros and ones. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at that, um, I've kind of done a twist on a Tom Collins so we, everything just goes into the uh, highball, sugar, syrup, uh, okay. 10, 10 mils of that, uh, 20 mils of lemon juice. Mm-hmm. I know you guys use ounces, but I'm not sure my maths is as good as hers to get all this translated. We'll do the conversion. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and then there's Campari as well, which is 10 mils. There are 40 mils of the Tapatio 110, orange bitters, two dashes, and then topped up with soda. And what is Tapatio? Tapatio is a tequila. Um, 110 comes from the proof, and obviously being the 110 and that being binary code, which we kind of use quite often today. I feel so. like I'm talking to Ada Lovelace, because <laughs> I'm, I, I am more of the uh, romantic tradition, not the digital tradition. Uh, so do you have a name for this drink? Um, so there are a few names. We kind of uh, went around Ada's name and Lovelace, the Lovelace Collins. I actually just thought of this when you said it. Um, wait, wait. Binary code. Ooh, there we go. Not working? No? Yeah, I like that. Not a new tattoo for you? No, I, I really like that. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Allie Reynolds from the Hawksmoor Spitalfields in London. 
And Rico, check this out. Ali is the 2015 World Class UK Bartender of the Year. Very nice. Yes, but classic British self-effacement. He hastened to add that a guy in Japan holds the international title. Oh, Ali's right. just the fourth best bartender in the world, turns out. Fourth out of five trillion bartenders. That's right. Work harder, Ali. You're slacking. Uh, folks, you'll find Ali's recipe at dinnerpartydownload.org. And you can read more about Ada Lovelace at atlasobscura.com. And now the soundtrack in which a top musician DJs your dinner party. And today our guests are Matt Berninger and Brent Knopf, the duo behind the band El Vi. Yes. You may know Matt from the hugely popular indie band The National and Brent from the Portland band Menomena. Their latest album is called Return to the Moon. Here they are to list some tunes and to bust each other's chops. Hey, this is Matt from El Vi, and I'm here with Brent. Brent, say hello. Hey, everybody. We're here with our dinner party soundtrack. <laughs> first song I'd like to pick is Bobby Charles, Small Town Talk. Bobby Charles is best known for like what they, they called Swamp Pop. He was from Louisiana. And he re- co-wrote this song with uh, Rich Danko from the band. See, I did some research for this, Brent. Mm-hmm. It shows. It's all small town talk. You know how people long. They can't stand the sea. Someone else doing what they like. It's a lesson to be learned in this song. It's just about gossip. And if you throw glass houses around, you might hit some stones. So watch out. You mustn't pay no mind. Don't believe a word. They'll try to do it every time. In my opinion, dinner parties is that you and a bunch of friends get together and uh, just talk smack about the, the other friends that aren't at the dinner party. Matt, you, you talk about people behind their backs? I is that what you're mostly nice things. What do you say about me? What do I say about you? Yeah. I, mean, I can't tell you. You can't believe everything you hear and only half of what you see. I, if, if I had something to say to you, I would say it to your face. I'm just Okay, great. Well, what do you have to say? What's your song? Well, rather than talk about other people, I think it's... You know, another good discussion item is family. And um, fathers and sons is a great topic to bring up. You think about the classic track by Cat Stevens called Cats in the Cradle. And it's... Uh, mm, okay. It's, it's, uh, he, I don't know if you know this. Not many not people sure know this. you're right about that, but go ahead. Take it away, Brent. Cat Stevens went on a pilgrimage to Kathmandu. Is this true? It's, it's on his pilgrimage that he actually meets the Beatles. Is this something you read somewhere, Brent? It's on Wikipedia. Look it up. And uh, it was there that Cat Stevens asked George Harrison to play sitar. So you could hear some sitar on this track. So this is, <laughs> why are you laughing? This is none of it's true. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy doing the man on the moon. When you're coming home, daddy don't know when. But we'll get together then. Can I just say, I don't know if it's a great, that, that's a great song for this, because don't you cry every time? All the men at the table are just going to start crying about their dads. But I think I think that's a beautiful thing. Maybe it could open up a lot of feelings in the house, but everything you said about that song I'm pretty sure is incorrect. Uh, for the record, Harry Chapin sings that song, and no, he didn't play sitar with the Beatles, and he didn't write all the songs that have Cat in the title. He wrote the musical Cats. Uh, no, he didn't. Um, 
let's do our song now. I, I'd rather put our song right here, right in the middle of the dinner party. Mostly because I want people to hear it, and if the dinner party's not going well, then, then everyone will leave before our song comes on, which happens all the time. Uh, so let's do Paul is Alive. Brent, tell, why don't you tell us about this one? You know, whenever we get interviewed, people are always asking what the lyrics are about, and we don't really talk about it because we only talk about each other behind each other's backs, apparently. But as far as I can tell, this one is about an alcoholic horse racer who almost <laughs> drowns in the river outside Cincinnati. Where are you getting the horse racer part? It's it's in the lyrics. Sitting outside the jockey club. Oh, the jockey club. No, yeah. that's a punk club, bro. I mean, don't, don't you feel like it's limiting to like constrain the meaning no, no, of the song like, to like one definition? Great, dude, that's, that, that's what it means to me. Okay, great. When I, when I hear it, I mean... It, well done. I think that's a really interesting interpretation. Uh, interesting and totally wrong. Paul is alive. It's a story about my parents and, uh, and about uh, growing up in Cincinnati. It's not about a dead horse racer. No, he's alive. He almost drowns. Okay. Nope. Um, next song. Let's say in this point in the evening, it's time for the party to be over. When I'm trying to get rid of friends, mm-hmm. I like to play a, a song called Stiffed by the Sexorama Band. Hear that? Feeling the vibe there? Mm. Everyone's going to get instantly uncomfortable. Everyone would suddenly feel like, what's Matt trying to do here? Mm. This is weird. We should all leave now before it gets weird. And next thing you know, everybody's gone. You sure this song wouldn't make people want to stay? That's, you're right. All night? It could backfire. Be careful with this one. You got to know your friends well. A dinner party soundtrack from Matt Berninger and Brent Knopf of the band El Vi. Their new album is called Return to the Moon. You should check it out. All right, coming up, we chat with actor Alicia Vikander. In the new film, The Danish Girl, she plays a groundbreaking painter. It was not typecasting. Pictionary. I'm really bad at it. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Randall Monroe, the man behind the comic XKCD, explains his book called Thing Explainer. Makes sense. Plus, mm-hmm. Emily Post's great grandkids tell us what to do with empty coffee creamer containers. But first, finally, yes, let's meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actor Alicia Vikander. She was just nominated for two Golden Globe Awards, one for playing a cyborg in the sci-fi thriller Ex Machina, and the second for a film that opens nationwide this week, The Danish Girl. That's right. Alicia plays the real-life artist Gerda Wegener, who at the turn of the century rose to prominence with paintings of a mysterious woman. The woman turned out to be Gerda's husband, Inar, dressed in woman's clothing. Inar was, in fact, the transgender woman, Lily, and later underwent the first gender reassignment surgery ever. Here's a clip in which Gerda remembers her first date with Inar. He was so shy, so I asked him out. What was it about him? I don't know. But we went for coffee, and after, I kissed him. And it was the strangest thing. It was like kissing myself. When I spoke with Alicia, I mentioned some considered Gerda the Lady Gaga of her day. 
<laughs> really? Yeah. This, In what way? Tell me. She's, a, she's an artist. She's a boundary breaker. <laughs> yeah, she was a very ahead of her time, I guess. Yeah, she questions gender through art. Tell me a little bit about what you learned about Gerda. What was most surprising to you? Well, the amount of information that you can find is sometimes difficult and it was also quite a lot of ambiguity in the information that we found and some of it was actually not correct. It seems like it's been mm. a bit of a political... You know, it's, it's, you would think that this story, because it is that you were such pioneers and it's so remarkable, but it has a bit been forgotten. But one thing that has survived is, of course, her quite extreme and provocative for that time art. She was a, also a working woman in the 1920s. Which is crazy, yeah. Yeah, and then the fact that she actually stayed with Lily through transitioning. And it's quite remarkable to know that these two people who lived in a time when there was no reference or it was even illegal to be able to speak up they almost put Lily in jail at yeah. one point in, in, in Copenhagen. Do you have some idea of what gave Gerda the stomach I guess or the fortitude to actually do this at a time when it was just unheard of? I, I, I do think that an artist to be able to be free in your art you need to have an open mind I guess mm -hmm. and and you're also interested in things that will take you on experiences or make you think so I definitely think that art encourages openness it's true the first half hour of the movie really is is almost as much about the openness of artists as it is anything because your character I thought the movie would be about her being shocked yes that the man she thought she'd married might actually be a transgender woman but she's actually almost turned on by the process at first and really a catalyst for it yes I think actually when when you went back and all the photographs that we found about these two women was quite extraordinary I mean two women very playful when it comes to clothes and outfits and in the way they pose together and it seems really much like they were artistic women the press kit for this movie comes with a glossary of terms to help people like me talk about the transgender community. And I have to say, it gets complicated. You know, for instance, I, as someone who has a male physiognomy and feels emotionally and mentally male, in a transgender context, I'm not just called a man, but a cisgendered man, for instance. Yes. Was there a learning curve even talking about these issues on the set? I, was, I was like you there. And it's been, above anything, this film has been so educational. Yesterday we were, <laughs> Tom and I and the film was invited to join Champions of Change at the White House yesterday. And to see, first of all, we have a president uh, in the United States who are the first president to ever use the word transgender wow. and to acknowledge that. I was quite moved and, and I, I, I'm happy to see that Actually, over the last few months, just doing press, I've realized that in the same way that I now feel extremely comfortable talking about it, which I was afraid because you, you were maybe afraid of stepping on toes or yeah, yeah, yeah. making a, you know, a wrong stake. And it's been interesting to see that journalists that I've met have changed their vocabulary as well. I, th I would be remiss not to talk about uh, the movie Ex Machina, which I think, like a lot of Americans, that was the first film I saw you in. Very different role. Gerda is this passionate woman. She wears her heart on her sleeve. In Ex Machina, you play a cyborg who shows almost no emotion, and when she does, we're not even sure she means it. I suspect that you're more like Gerda. <laughs> so it's interesting, though, because when I going back to I, that, I mentioned that I went to this um, event at the White House yesterday. It was a lot of the trans women that I met had seen Ex Machina and thought that that was one of the most 
relatable films what? that they had seen because of how she, in the end, kind of puts on her skin. Yeah. Transforms is... into the being that she wants to be, that she feels that she is inside. That's true. She's a, she's a robot and she puts on a human skin and steps out into the world. Yeah, I just thought, you know, it's that, that's just interesting because as soon as they brought it up, I kind of immediately, I was like, wow, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. I can totally see that. I'm going to move on to our two standard questions. We ask these to everybody. Okay. <laughs> and the first of them is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question shouldn't we ask you? What's if I want to um, play Pictionary. <laughs> I'm really bad at it. I'm very good at playing cards, though. Oh, poker and stuff? Yeah, Jim Rummy. Oh, no. Yeah. You're a, you're a ringer? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to take everyone's cash? So so basically, we should challenge you to Pictionary if we want to keep our wallets. Mm, yeah, I, I, might, I might walk out then, because I'm, <laughs> I'm one of those people who kind of draw a straight line, and then I just point at it. <laughs> What are you talking about? It's a donkey. <laughs> uh, here's our second question. Tell us something we don't know. Now, the first thing that came up to my head because we were playing cards, this is so silly, but I actually carry around with me a pack of cards wherever I go. Are you actually a con man? <laughs> yeah, we should have a game night. <laughs> well, I'm not coming to your game night. It'll be like a pauper by the time it's over. Tell me, who's the, who is the celebrity that you have taken for the most cash? I should, but we normally don't play with money. But now when you uh, reminded me, I, I did a film called A Royal Affair a couple oh, yeah. of years ago. With the actor Mads Mikkelsen. And uh, Mads Mikkelsen, he's such a, like, a boy carries around his football everywhere and really likes to play cards. Oh, yeah. So I did learn how to play poker on that film, which I never had done. And... The first game, we were like 14 players, so the pot was quite big. And I took that home, and I hope he's not listening to this program, but oh my God, he was like pissed for three days. Like, really? He was like acting like he wasn't. You don't want to, that guy has played Hannibal Lecter and Le Chiffre and James Bond. He doesn't seem like a man that you want to get on the wrong side of. That might not have been a good move. (laughs) Alicia Vikander. She just earned Golden Globe nominations for her roles in the films Ex Machina and The Danish Girl. And apparently she's gunning for a role in the remake of The Sting. (laughs) Apparently. Uh, And people actually, speaking of Mads Mikkelsen, Brendan interviewed him a while back. And you can hear it at dinnerpartydownload.org. He's a nice and handsome man. Time to eavesdrop. Australian Josh Thomas created, wrote, and stars in the comedy series Please Like Me. In it, he tackles coming out and coming of age. Today, we overhear him tell a true tale from the top of the world. Hello, my name is Josh Thomas. I have a television show, and it's called Please Like Me. And it's on, on, what's on Pivot and Hulu, and it's pretty good. Right? It's fine. The TV show's all right. So I thought it would be nice to do something nice for my mum. She's never been to New York, and she's always wanted to go to New York, and I decided to bring my mum. This story is about what I think is the most beautiful thing she's ever done for me, and I don't want to sound like I'm overstating that, because, of course, my mum has done a lot of beautiful things for me. She is my mum, you know, like, she gave birth to me, which is, that's, like, pretty important, and um, she sort of loved me and raised me and fed me and, like, pretend to lose at video games and just did all the sort of normal, beautiful stuff mums did. But on the second night of this trip, I feel like she really went far and beyond. 
what happened was, right, we were at the launch for um, the first episode of my show, and at the launch party there was free alcohol, right, because like, in show business you always get free alcohol. And my mum, she doesn't like drinking, no way, not, never, she never does it, no thank you. But she also really, really likes getting value for money, so she took the, the free alcohol because she would just see not drinking the alcohol as throwing cash into the bin. So she drank, like, all of the, um, like, all of the Prosecco. Like, nobody else had any Prosecco. And then she just, like, louder and louder tells, like, all the network executives and everyone else how much she loves me and, and how proud she is of me. And I just kept having to, like, remind myself that that is actually a really nice thing. I always find it hard not to, like, revert to when I'm a 16-year-old and, like, just wanting to yell, like, shut up, shut up, shut up, you're embarrassing me to her, because everyone else finds it really fun. So I was sort of biting my tongue. And then that party finished. She wanted to go out to bars, but I um, I didn't want her to drink any more alcohol, and I, I thought what might be cute is if we went up the Empire State Building, because you can go up there until 2 a.m. now, and that's a new thing. She'd been talking about going to the Empire State Building ever since we booked the trip. So I said to her we could go, but she had to promise me that she would be quiet until we got to the roof. Because I said, it's okay if we get up there and we get kicked out. That's fine. I can handle that. But getting kicked out before we get to the roof, that would be very, very sad. And she says, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. So we get to the Empire State Building and my mum obviously is like sarcastically like tiptoeing around and telling everyone to shush and just being like the absolute loudest version of quiet that you can be through the beautiful Empire State Building sort of art deco foyer. And she gets in the elevator. She's on top of the world, just so happy, having the nicest time of her life, and so loud and so embarrassing. And then the elevator moves very fast up to the very tall part of the very tall building, 86 floors. And she gets out of the elevator, looks out, you know, across Manhattan, and it's it's pretty good. Like, that's a really nice place to stand. It's nighttime, it's Manhattan, you can see Times Square, you can see the Chrysler building. It's really, it's one of the best views you could imagine seeing. My mum throws me her handbag, barges outside, goes to the ledge, and vomits off the side of it. I've done, like, some partying in my time. Like, I've got up to some mischief. But nothing could ever compare to that. To vomit off an icon, I think it's just the funniest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) It's the most majestic thing I've ever seen. Josh Thomas, the season three finale of his comedy series Please Like Me airs Friday on the Pivot Network. You can find past episodes on Hulu, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Randall Monroe is a cartoonist with a degree in physics. Years ago, while working as a roboticist for NASA, he started a webcomic called XKCD. The drawings are simple, mostly stick figures, but the concepts are big as he takes on technology, computer science, and math. Speaking of which, here's a number. It's read by up to 70 million people a month. His latest book is called Thing Explainer, Complicated Stuff in Simple Words. And true to the title, he draws and describes complex things like engines and laptops using only the thousand most common words in the English language. So when Randall joined me from a hotel in San Francisco, I asked him to simply explain 
his book. Well, it's a whole bunch of sheets of paper that are all stuck together on one side so they don't uh, get lost. <laughs> and then, um, and then there, there's really hard paper on the front and the back, which keeps the paper inside from getting torn when people are carrying it around. <laughs> I want to give our audience a sense of how you use these words. So I was going to try kind of giving you a complex word that you've already broken down in the book, and maybe you can tell me how you decided to explain okay. that concept. The first one is cell, C-E-L-L, as in cells in our body. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I describe cells as they're the little bags of water that you're made of. <laughs> That's right, the bags of stuff inside you. I think that the cell was probably the hardest one to explain in simple words, um, partly because everything is so uh, made up of membranes. And, you know, I can't say membrane, obviously, so I was, you know, calling yeah. everything bags. And I felt like I was using the word bags so often on that page, but it wasn't really that it, it, that was just because it really is all of life is just membranes inside membranes inside membranes. So either I'm going to use the word mm. membrane a lot or I'm going to use the word bag a lot. So, okay, another, another phrase. Tell me how you described a helicopter. Oh, uh, well, a helicopter is, um, so there's a regular plane, which uh, I, I would sometimes call a sky boat. Um, and, a, mm. and a helicopter <laughs> is just a sky boat with turning wings. There were a lot of things about a helicopter that confused me. And it was actually when I started realizing that it's just like a plane, except the wings are going around in a circle so that the, pl- the helicopter can stay still. Um, that really yes. kind of helped me understand a couple of things about helicopters that I had not, that hadn't clicked before. Were there other moments in the book like that? I mean, you go through, I think, about 50, 55 things here. What was one of the things that really you were like, wow, I'm really happy I went through this exercise because now I have a richer understanding of this? Well, I, I definitely think the helicopter was a fun exercise that way. There was one, one, of, the, one of the more sort of uh, strange phrases I used to describe something was a, um, when I was describing how a padlock worked. And hmm. I called it a shape checker. And people were sort of, when I talked to people about it, they were, you know, suggesting things like, well, this is a, you know, a thing that lets the right people in or something. Yeah. Um, but, and, and, I, and that's sort of how we think about locks. But really, what the, all the lock does is it checks whether a piece of metal is the right shape. <laughs> um, and shortly after, you know, soon after I had, I had written the chapter on that, where I was trying to talk about, you know, what a lock really does, there was an article in the newspaper on the TSA's program for secure uh, luggage locks. Mm-hmm. Where the, it's a program where the TSA has master keys to all these commercial luggage locks, so they, they can open up the stuff in the airport if they oh, want wow. to inspect it. And the, and, the, and the newspaper had run an article on this where they published, among other things, a photo of all of the cool TSA, you know, their master key set. And whoever was publishing, you know, they didn't realize that a photo of a key shows the shape of the key. And that's all the information you need to make another key. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There's nothing magical about the key itself. You know, it's not like this is a, we think of it as just a token. But yeah. really all it is is a certain shape. <laughs> and so, um, and so, when they ran the story, but it's like it's totally understandable. You just because we think about keys in this sort of weird way, as they're this me- you know this metaphor, this idea. But really, it's just a shape. Yeah. Well, this book again and again makes you rethink some fundamental concepts. You know, another another way of looking at this book. I have a friend who's an economist, and she often gets upset when people say that they're not math people. Mm-hmm. She feels like it's a little bit of a cop-out and that it shows that society, we've just accepted, like, you know what, it's okay if you don't understand math. That's not really healthy for people because everyone has the capacity to learn math. Similarly, you know, could, could a complaint be made that this book may inadvertently enable 
kind of people's technical illiteracy? Well, I think um, really what I'm trying to focus on here is sort of the way that we're using language. Um, and I think that, you know, I want to I explain the way an engine works in a way that really does, you know, help give you an understanding of it, whether or not you, you know the complicated words. You know, I did, I did, a, I did a degree in physics, and I, and I felt like I always, I always had this impulse to, to kind of use complicated words just to show that I knew them, because mm. there's such a, a, a pressure to, to show that you know things and this insecurity anytime you're doing anything, especially in academia, it, that makes you kind of want to go out of your way to make sure to like preempt anyone uh, criticizing, you know, or anyone being able to catch you and using something wrong. And sure. I think that sometimes that can be a little bit counterproductive. Um, and so yeah. I, I liked having, having a book that sort of went in the other direction a little bit. So our show is called The Dinner Party. We're really, you know, a magazine mm-hmm. about things happening in culture this week. Could you just uh, maybe describe a dinner party using some of these common words? Sure. Um, so a dinner party um, is a bunch of people getting together and they get to talk about stuff and they eat and drink stuff. And sometimes the stuff they drink makes it so that they talk more or they don't think as much about what they're saying. Um, and then they also eat stuff that people found in the ocean that doesn't look like the stuff that you would normally eat. And I've always thought that was a little bit strange. Randall Monroe, his new book is called Thing Explainer, Complicated Stuff in Simple Words. Nice. Me like to hear the mouth words with you and him. Thanks, Rico, but I think public radio can handle more than simple words. All right. Then uh, may I enjoin all assembled to anticipate a pair of exalted visitants joining us mere minutes hence, <laughs> namely Emily Post and Daniel Post-Senning with counsel on matters of decorum upon the recommencement of the dinner party data transfer. Better. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, I use Hanukkah as an excuse to get one of the best chefs in L.A. to serve me fried food for free. But first, speaking of questionable behavior, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and we usually invite a celebrity to answer them. But this week, we have our resident etiquette celebrities, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post setting. Huzzah. The great-great-grandkids of Emily Post. They are the hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette, and they make the world a more cheerful, polite place from their secret fortress known as the Emily Post Institute in Burlington, Vermont. Lizzie, Dan... Welcome. Huzzah. I know. I was like, there were so many great things in that intro. I don't know where to begin. First question, are you supposed to compliment your own introduction? <laughs> yes. I don't know, but I'm going for it. That was great. All right. All right, folks, let's get down to the holidays. They're happening almost as we speak, <laughs> but they also put us into very close proximity with each other. You may have noticed in airplanes, uh, on in store aisles, guest bedrooms at your uncle's house. What is the exact dimension we would like to know? of the bubble of personal space that should exist around an individual. Oh, Dan's got this. Mm-hmm. He's got 18 it. inches <laughs> is comfortable social distance in the United States. Is that true? Really? You've done this calculus? Yes. That is true. It's about an arm's length. We asked that facetiously and you haven't answered. <laughs> and test it. Don't take my word for it. Try just reducing that space <laughs> the next time you're talking with someone. Try getting closer than 18 inches and watch what happens. Yeah. Do airlines know this? Because <laughs> oh, I wish. Apparently not. Maybe, maybe that's what makes us all uncomfortable. 
where does that number come from? Do you know offhand? I, I know that it varies, that it that varies culturally, but and that actually in America, it's on the longer end of the spectrum. Hmm. We're used to a little more space here. I do think in America, at least, it comes from the idea of being an arm length distance away from somebody. Ah, I see. Hmm. Like you can't be slugged. You're just outside of slugging. <laughs> Quite <distance>. possibly. <laughs> just out of reach. All right. Well, look, clearly you've, you've demonstrated that you know everything about etiquette. So let's ask some of these questions that mm-hmm. have been sent in for you. I dig it. Please. This first one comes from Eric in Oklahoma. And Eric writes, I eat out fairly often, but I never know what to do with the debris that accumulates during a meal. Empty sugar packets, used coffee creamer containers, etc. Mm. What's the answer? Keep it neat yeah. is the, the principle that you're trying to observe. And it can, it can be tricky. Your bread plate's a great receptacle for a lot of that trash that starts to develop at the table. But maybe keeping it from accumulating in the first place is my tip. So like don't use sugar? No, but no need to shred up your sugar package. I mean, you can just give it a tear, pour it out, and then, I don't know, maybe I'm a little OCD, leave it flat or fold it back in half or something like that. You don't want it strewn about. Let's not scatter them to the winds. It would be nice if the server just removed them. Always the best. No need to sort it alphabetically in the meantime. (laughs) I do have a a quick follow-up question. As someone who uses half a packet of sugar per cup of tea, sometimes when the server takes the half packet... It just scatters sugar all over the place. Mm-hmm. So fold so, the um, fold the open end over a couple times yeah, so that that doesn't happen when they. Pick I, up. I do the fold, but it, the fold doesn't work. I say bring a well, pocket full to... of hairpins. <laughs> hairpins. <laughs> yeah. There we go. That's a good idea. Is what you want. Or you could just exactly. take a hairpin off your guest, and That'd be yeah. great. bangs will fall on their face. All right. So that's me. Here's something from John Henry. Great name in Napa, Great California. Name. Real name. John Henry writes. <laughs> it may not be a real name, but it's a very American name. My father's name. <laughs> oh, really? Yep. Oh, I don't think you better look into go. that. I think you might be mythological. Here's <laughs> John writes, a few weeks ago, a friend brought a bottle of wine to my dinner party that had already been opened and was a third empty. Gasp! Like, okay, but the plot thickens. Later, other friends told me the wine sells for over 300 bucks a bottle and that it's hard to get a full bottle at that price. I felt oh. and still feel that the bottle price is no excuse. Either bring a full mm. bottle to share or bring flowers instead. Thoughts? That is kind of an awkward thing. To, it's just like you wouldn't bring a, a half-eaten box of chocolates and say, hey, I wanted to share. <laughs> a, p- a pie with two pieces. A pie with two pieces. You don't do yeah, that. But if you, but if you had a special chocolate bar from like Switzerland Here's, that you That you back, ate half of? No. No, the, you, do, think, you, you say that it says teeth marks, but you could elegantly break off half of a chocolate bar. I'm just, I'm just saying. These teeth marks elegantly. are now trendy. I think that the way to go here is that if you're the person bringing this kind of a really big deal bottle of wine, when you present it to your host, that's when you let them know what's yeah. going on. Hey, ah, I know this looks a little silly that it's three quarters full, but here's the deal with this wine. It's really hard yeah. to find, and you actually almost can't get a full bottle of it anywhere. Yeah. In a way, you can break manners as long as you're aware you're breaking them and you let others kind of know gently that you know. Ding, ding, ding. Welcome to the golden rule of re-gifting. You're like, yeah. I'm going to punch you in the face, and it's I know that that's them. not right, but I'm letting you know that I'm going to hit you right now. <laughs> How does that work? That's not true. Knowing the rules so you know how and when to break them. Yeah, It's right. an important part of sportsmanship. I think that goes okay. for everything. Hey, I know this isn't right, but I'm telling you all to shut up. All right. <laughs> Honestly, it still feels weird to me. But I'll, I'll, hey, I like it. I like this new thing. <laughs> Next question. This comes from Lucas in Miami, Florida. And Lucas writes, this has been happening to me sort of frequently. What do you do when you're making small talk with an acquaintance or coworker and they start espousing really strange conspiracy theories? 
I don't want to alienate anyone by arguing, but at the same time, I feel really weird just sitting there and nodding my head. Mm. I find a spirit of curiosity can sometimes help navigate yeah. that territory. Just of... so you know, that can get really long-winded. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But no, I but I like where Dan's going with this. Rather than be, this is my opinion, this is how it is, when someone's bringing up things that might not resonate with you, ask them questions about it. Get curious about it. It does mm. allow a conversation to happen without you having to all of a sudden take ownership of a side or an agenda. But I have a question. What if What if you're in this situation and you're there with, say your nephew or with um, right. a new partner or something like that. Maybe they look to you for knowledge. Maybe if it's a partner, you're, they're just learning about you. What do you do then? Yeah, you don't want to seem like a pushover or that you're sort of quietly, tacitly agreeing Or that you with agree with them. Yeah. I don't think you are doing that by, by questioning or furthering the conversation. I think you're not saying... Oh, you're right about that. You're saying, "Huh, that's interesting." And then we do and the so, we do the all-American thing, and afterwards, you say to your nephew when you're out of earshot of that person. By the way, mm-hmm. that guy's a nutcase. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You talk behind their back. Absolutely. That's right. That's what we do in this exactly. country. Exactly. We are promoting jerkism on our show today. <laughs> or before you leave that person, you say, "Look, I'm going to talk behind your back in a moment." <laughs> <laughs> yes. But you go right ahead for the time being, and that makes it okay. Yeah. Thank you, Post. So just. So you know, I love this conversation. I'm going to tell everyone else you're wrong later on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. All right. Lizzie Post, Daniel Post sending. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave as usual. Oh, thank you so much. So long, gentlemen. Happy holidays. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. They are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Manners for a New World. And folks, if you have a question about how to behave, send it. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, food-wise, I have to say it's my favorite time of year because the half-Italian side of me gets to feast on seafood on Christmas Eve, Mm -hmm. and the half-Jewish side gets to chow down on fried food for Hanukkah. Right. Isn't that nice? Using your dual heritage for gluttony. That's That's, the true reason of the season. That's what it's all about. Anyway, this week is the Hanukkah part, of course. For those who don't know, this is a holiday. It celebrates the miracle where a night's worth of lamp oil lasted eight nights. So typically you serve food cooked in oil, including potato pancakes, latkes, and sufganyo, which are kind of like donut holes. There we go. Happy Hanukkah. It's a dream, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Both of those items are on the Hanukkah menu at Redbird, one of the top restaurants in L.A. Right. So in an upstairs kitchen at Redbird, I met with chef and owner Neil Fraser, who also runs a joint called BLD. He told me his Hanukkah menu is selling like hot latkes. I had a restaurant, still have a restaurant, in the heart of the Jewish area of Los Angeles. Uh, never even thought to have a Hanukkah menu. We did Passover menus. We had the whole lamb bone and the salted water and the parsley and the horseradish. Five people ordered it. Uh, we did a Hanukkah menu, and the first night I think we sold 17 menus or something like that. It got, it got a lot more interest than the Passover menu? Yeah, it got more interest. It got more interest than my, my all-hemp menu that I did many years ago. That surprises me in L.A. Yeah, it's, you're always surprised. Angelinos like their hemp. It's interesting to me that you have a Hanukkah meal because growing up as a Jew, I don't remember the meal being as important as, say, Passover or Rosh Hashanah. Uh, as a chef, no. I mean, I wasn't raised religious, you know, but I also I have a lot of Jewish friends. I've been to a lot of Seder dinners. I've done a lot of Sabbath dinners, and I've never been to a Hanukkah meal. So, I mean, obviously... From a religious standpoint, it's a lot less important of a holiday. I mean, it's, you know, I think it depends, you know, like my old neighborhood where BLD is, 
there's people driving around with menorahs on the top of their cars. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. There's more than one car in the neighborhood that has a menorah. And each, each night they light a light. And depending on how you practice and who you practice with, some of these things are more important. I think that for most devout Jews, all holidays are important because it's about family and getting together and celebrating together. And I can tell you from experience that a Jew will take any excuse to eat. There you go. But let me, all right, let's start with the latkes, which is what starts your menu. I know that as a kid, my mom would make latkes and I always wanted them to be as much like a McDonald's hash brown <laughs> as possible. And they never were. It was very disappointing to me. Who is right? Is it supposed to be doughy or is it supposed to be super crispy? I think, you know, what you're looking for is closer to a hash brown. Latkes usually have eggs in them and, and flour. You know, we used rice flour in ours, but I think ours are probably closer to what you'd be disappointed as a, as a child. They're definitely not deep fried and tallow. I mean, they're, you know, they're pan sauteed and uh, they're delicious, but they are more of a traditional latka. All right. So I was wrong and my mom was right. I, I think so. All right. Uh, the Sufganyo. First of all, it's compared often to a donut. How is it different than a donut? I, I don't think it is. I think it's a donut. All right, I'm in. Okay, I'm seated at the bar downstairs, and here comes Chef Fraser with... There you go. It's uh, potato latkes with creme fraiche and caviar. I could not think of a prettier-looking dish. I'm really not used to latkes looking this composed, however. I'm used to usually a big pile of them on the plate. This is fine dining Hanukkah around here. It's definitely beautiful. We've got the uh, little medallion of uh, potato pancake and a little dollop of creme fraiche on top and a little dollop of purpley caviar. And I'd say these are thick. They're not too thick. They're not like wafer thin. They're about the, the thickness of three quarter coins. Silver dollar in shape. Oh, that's true. So we've got a lot of different kinds of monetary metaphors going on in this. It's not the whole thing with Hanukkah too? Fake money, right? That's true. It's kind of about the size of a chocolate gold coin. And I'm going to take a bite. Oh, that's great. Nice and crispy on the outside and just a little doughy on the inside so you get that nice difference in texture. What is the secret to making that happen? Crispy on the outside, creamy on the inside. Um, cooking it relatively fast, not so fast that the potato on the inside is raw because that's not a desirable thing to eat raw potatoes. Um, clarified butter or butter, you know, having some, something to help caramelize those potatoes. Butter and potatoes are good friends. Not oil, you would say? Uh, you could use both, but definitely butter is going to help caramelize the potato. Um, this is excellent, but, you know, it's not a donut. The donut's coming. The donuts are proofing as we speak. All right, and here comes the sufganyot. Uh, being brought to me by Jasmine, who is the uh, pastry chef here at Redbird. Tell me what I'm... Oh, my God, it's beautiful. What am I looking at here? So you're looking at a traditional souf with um, apple butter filling in the middle. Um, there is salted caramel sauce in the bottom and a nice apple compote and uh, cinnamon ice cream and a little bit of um, brioche crumbs at the bottom holding that up. I will say that this is not the traditional way you would plate donut holes. We have the beautiful white plate with a shallow bowl part in the middle of it, and there's a kind of large, oh, how would I put that? It's a quenelle of ice cream. <laughs> that's, that's called a quenelle? It's a football shape. <laughs> Very good. From now on, when I watch football, I'm going to call the football the quenelle. Um, so a quenelle-shaped dollop of ice cream here. It's beautiful looking, and I'm going to take a bite of it. That is delicious. 
It's also kind of fall-like. I mean, I guess we're in winter now, but it does seem, it feels very cozy. You know, apple butter and caramel and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I kept all the flavors kind of simple and homey, just like, uh, you know, regular Jewish cooking would be. But instead making it um, a little bit more of a modern take um, and um, using apples instead of uh, regular jams or jellies that they would normally use. All right, last question. The oil that you use for this, can you use it for eight solid nights? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Chef Neil Fraser and pastry chef Jasmine Corpus of Redbird in downtown L.A. Their Hanukkah menu also includes a chicken liver pasta uniting Mm. both halves of my Jewish-Italian soul. All right, it's a holiday miracle, and that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Next time, comedian Hannibal Barris stops by with etiquette tips. And speaking of fun, what are you doing January 28th? Nothing? How about joining us at our live midwinter review? That's right. It'll be a night of advice, mirth, and music to get you through those post-holiday blues. Guests include actor Jason Schwartzman, rocker father John Misty, and more. It all goes down at the Theater at Ace Hotel in downtown L.A. with partner station KPCC. Tickets at kpcc.org slash events. Write that down, kpcc.org slash events. And now you should know, Jackson Musker produces our show, Nina Patak is associate producer, and Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer, Bill Lance engineered, our executive producer is Larissa Anderson, and now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Paul Birch is a piano player Nashvilleian who loves honky-tonk. His latest project is called Meridian Rising, and it's a musical autobiography of the father of country music, Jimmy Rogers. Here's a track called Meridian. Bon appétit. Let me tell you all about the place I'm from Where the polies tip their hats while they're swinging their clothes And the southern mobile and Ohio cross lines You best mind where you go and watch what you say I'll visit your mom, but I ain't gonna stay in Meridian, in Meridian. Mm-hmm. We've got creep joints and barbers and fine pool halls, and here come the ladies in their parasols, and the boys in uniform just home from the frost. The girls sneak a puff, picky and cigarettes When I'm a star, I'll ball them all So I have no regrets about Meridian Meridian mm-hmm. you never know they're all playing for keeps But they close their doors when I'm on the street Someday Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And hey, just as a gentle heads up, I'm going to sneeze in your face. What? Ah! What's that look? I warned you.